this morning in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. A very familiar passage of Scripture that you hear this time of year. Isaiah is prophesying God's going to send a Messiah. God's going to restore Israel. He's going to arise and shine. Your light has come. And this is one of these just for two verses. And then he goes right back to wrath and judgment. (laughs) But for two verses in here, there's a messianic prophecy of Jesus. Seven or eight hundred years before Jesus is born, Isaiah says this, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. How many of you are singing that in your head as I read it? All right, if you know this passage, you probably know it from Handel's Messiah. Again, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and his, over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with justice and judgment from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is a messianic prophecy. The Jews looked for God's anointed one to come and reestablish the throne of David, to deliver Israel from enemies and reestablish the glory and the righteousness that Israel had had during David and Solomon's kingdoms. But they did not understand or foresee, even though it's prophesied in Isaiah and other places, they didn't understand or foresee the universal nature of who Jesus was going to be, that the Messiah was for everyone on the entire world. Uh, The entire planet was included, that the throne of the Messiah was one of salvation from sin, not earthly government for Israel. Nobody conceived that the Messiah would be God himself, come in the flesh. Nobody saw that. No one, not even Isaiah, understood the crucifixion and resurrection and eternal life. Isaiah prophesied the crucifixion, but he didn't know that he was. No one foresaw there was going to be a new covenant. And no one, not even the original apostles, understood that he'd be gone from the planet for 2,022 years. Nobody saw that. Eventually, the early Christians began to understand that he's not coming back tomorrow. Um, This is going to be a very, very long time. He said it very plainly in his parables, I'm going away for a long time. I'm going away to a far kingdom. Um, It's very clearly in the parables, but nobody understood Uh, how long it was going to be. But it is basic Orthodox Christianity that Jesus is returning in the flesh to establish his kingdom. And this prophecy will come fully true. There will be an actual throne in a palace in Jerusalem. There will be no more presidents or parliaments or dictators or armies. Only Jesus as king of the whole world and his army of heavenly hosts and his citizens, that's us, living on the whole earth in perfect peace. The earth will not continue as it is today, and heaven will not continue as it is today. They will become one. When he returns, the two will be one, and there will be a spiritual eternal kingdom in the flesh on the physical earth. And the government of the kingdom of heaven will be the government of earth. So Isaiah says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. When does this begin? Are we waiting still for him to return to establish the kingdom of heaven? No, Isaiah says, unto us a child is born. 
The government of the kingdom of heaven began when God came to earth as a human being. Jesus and Peter and Paul, John the Baptist, all start their ministries preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is now. From unto us a child is born, the kingdom of heaven has not stopped increasing. As I told you last week, it started small, a baby born in a manger, and it grew. For the last 2,022 years, the government of Jesus' kingdom has been increasing from the nativity until now, from the incarnation until now. The kingdom of heaven, the kingship of Jesus, has been continually increasing in the earth. But I want to stress emphatically here, Jesus did not come to set up a theocracy. He did not come, come to take over the world and make it his kingdom in the way that ISIS is trying to set up an Islamic theocracy. Hello? Jesus is not interested in forcing everyone to be Christian in the way that ISIS wants to force everyone to be Muslim. That's not at all what Jesus is interested in. That's what some of his disciples thought. It's what he was accused of at his trial was that he was trying to take over the government, but he, we know he absolutely was not. And he is not waiting to return until everyone on earth is a Christian. The church is never going to rule the world and everybody be saved and we live in this Christian perfection world before Jesus comes back. It's not going to happen. And also, let me stress, that Jesus did not die to redeem the world and its systems. He died to redeem people. Every individual person, but also all of us collectively. He died to redeem humanity and all creation. So, everything that makes us human, everything that makes us in the image of God, what we create and how we organize ourselves and how we treat each other, is included in redemption. Because as Jesus changes our heart... And our mind, it changes how we behave, and that changes the world. Let me say that again. As Jesus changes our heart, that changes our mind, that changes our actions and how we treat each other, and that changes the world. But Jesus did not come to change the world by force. He did not die to save America as America, or Canada as Canada, or Zimbabwe as Zimbabwe. He died for the people who live there. All right. So let me quote from Janesh D'Souza in What's So Great About Christianity. Christianity is responsible for the way our society is organized and for the way we currently live. So extensive is the Christian contribution to our laws, our economics, our politics, our arts, our calendar, our holidays, our moral and cultural priorities that historian J.M. Roberts writes in The Triumph of the West, we could none of us today be what we are if a handful of Jews nearly 2,000 years ago had not believed that they had known a great teacher, seen him crucified, dead, and buried, and then rise again. Unquote. Jesus' government on the earth has been increasing since the night he was born. But he's been gone for 2,000 years. So what does it look like? What does the kingdom of heaven look like if we're waiting in faith and he isn't here on a throne ruling as king of the earth? What does the kingdom of heaven look like right now? I want to tell you this morning, the kingdom of heaven and the government of Jesus is way bigger than you know. The effect of Jesus' government and the power of his words in the earth has affected absolutely everything since he was alive in ways that we just take for granted because we live in it and we don't understand how different things were before his life. So 
the number one change in the world since Jesus was incarnated and since his kingdom was released in the earth, the number one change in how the world works is the value of human life. Jesus came preaching the good news to the poor. He was conversational and kind with women in a world that wasn't. He took children on his knee and blessed them in a world that thought children were completely worthless. He made slaves equal members of his church. Criminals were forgiven in a world that branded criminals literally on the face. And you could never, ever get over what you had done. Jesus Christ came along and said, I will wash your past away. The value of the individual person that Jesus Christ released into the world through his parables and his teaching and his actions is incalculable compared to how the world used to be. Let's just start with this. There is no such thing as human rights outside of Christianity. What the world calls human rights doesn't exist outside of Christianity. Every single improvement in what the world calls human rights has been led by and is the fruit of the increase of the government of Jesus in the earth the spread of Christianity, and the increase of the church. Let's just start with women. In ancient cultures, a wife was the property of her husband. Aristotle wrote that a woman was somewhere between a free man and a slave. In his book, Reasons for God, by Tim Keller, he says this, It was extremely common in the Greco-Roman world to throw out new female infants to die from exposure because of the low status of women in society. The church forbade its members to do so. The Greco-Roman society saw no value in an unmarried woman, and therefore it was actually illegal for a widow to go more than two years without remarrying. But Christianity was the first religion to accept widows and to not force them to marry. They were supported financially and honored within the community so that they were not under great pressure to remarry if they didn't want to. Pagan widows lost all control of their husband's estate when they remarried, but the church was the first to allow widows to maintain their husband's estates. Finally, Christians did not believe in cohabitation. If a Christian man wanted to live with a woman, he had to marry her, and that gave women far greater security. And the pagan double standard of allowing married men to have mistresses was forbidden by Christianity. So in all these ways, Christian women enjoyed far greater security and equality than did women in any other surrounding culture, unquote. In India, widows were burned on their husband's funeral pyres. In South American native cultures, a wife was executed when her husband died. Christian missionaries were the major influence in stopping these century-old practices and ideas. The fact that any woman in this room owns property or can vote or can choose who she can marry is a direct result of Jesus Christ. It did not exist before Jesus. And even in the last 2,000 years, as Christianity spread around the globe, even very recently, even still today, in, particularly in the Muslim world, women still do not have these rights. She cannot pick who she marries. Romance is a Christian invention. Can you believe that? As stupid as the books and movies are, it's a Christian invention. It is. The fact that a woman can own property or vote or choose who she wants to marry, even a woman's right to divorce, even though Jesus said it's a sin and it's wrong, the fact that that is legal in countries where Christianity is the historical religion is the fruit of Christianity to protect women in a way that the Buddhist, Hindu, and Muslim world do not at all. Still today, they do not. She has no right to leave a husband who's abusive. In the Christian world, she does. The fact that we have laws against rape, the current sexual harassment circus going on in Washington and 
Hollywood would not exist if we did not live in a world governed by Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, no one would have cared. It was not against the law to rape a woman. It wasn't against the law to molest children. It was publicly done and open. It was no problem. Men can do whatever they want and still can. In the Muslim and Hindu world, the fact that we have this terrible problem, and thank God heads are rolling, but the fact that it is a crime and the fact that people are losing their jobs over sexual harassment and rape is the increase of the government of Jesus Christ in the earth. Because that never would have happened. It didn't happen before the spread of Christianity. And you would say, well, we just know it's wrong. Well, no, we don't. We know it's wrong because the Bible taught us. The pre-Christian world did not think any of that's wrong, and the non-Christian world today still thinks it's wrong. But you would say, well, Mitch, the people who fired Matt Lauer or Charlie Rose or Bill O'Reilly were not doing it because they were Christians. You're right, but they have a Christian ethic because they live in a country that where our laws are based on the Bible. And it would not happen even in China or Afghanistan or Russia today. It just it wouldn't happen the way it's happening in America. A man wouldn't lose his job for raping a woman. It is the increase of his government and of peace. Even the non-Christians in America, I call them post-Christian. The atheist who says, I don't need a God to tell me it's wrong to murder. Yes, we do. Because nobody thought that before God. The other religions all excuse it in lots of various cases, but not Christianity. Let's look at children. Child sacrifice was commonplace in the ancient world before Jesus. Even the ancient Jews did it. They sacrificed their children in the very ravine right next to the wall of Jerusalem. Ancient Greeks, ancient Romans, all of the Native American cultures, everyone in Africa did it. And child sacrifice was by no means rare. And Jesus came along and put value on children's lives. God, of course, banned it in the Old Testament, but they ignored it. Infanticide and abortion were very, very common. They didn't have the means to abort a pregnancy very well. Sometimes women would accomplish it, but mostly they would carry it to term, give birth, and then lay it out on a hillside to die, exposed in the weather or to wild animals. There are not just historical statements saying that that was true, but we actually have the letters written by the fathers to the mothers saying, if it's a girl, expose it out on the hillside and let her die. We can't have another mouth to feed. I don't want a girl. If it's a boy, keep it. And the pro-life movement has always been Christian, and it is largely Christian in America still today. It's been true since the first century. There is a first century Christian document called the Didache that was written before John the Apostle had died, and it contains instructions against abortion and infanticide. Adoption in the ancient world did not exist unless you were a very rich man who did not have a son and you needed to adopt a family member to have an heir. Otherwise, no one took in additional children. That would be more mouths to feed. We're not going to do that. They're on their own. The reason that the Old Testament and then particularly the New Testament put such an emphasis on taking care of orphans is because no one did. And they just wandered the streets and starved to death or became criminals or they had to join the army as a very young boy. Uh, The world was a very, very different place that we would have trouble even imagining in our world today. The children who were orphaned or who were exposed on the hillside, sometimes they died, but a lot of times they were picked up by slave traders. 
The slave traders knew where the babies were laid out on the hillside or where the orphans congregated, and they would go and take them for slavery, both labor and sex slavery. If you were an orphan or if you were an exposed child, you were going to end up as somebody's slave. Statistically, it's just the most common fate of those children. Child molestation in the Greek and Roman world was public. It was not illegal. It was never prosecuted. It was very open. The Greeks left us some beautiful statues and architecture, but it was a gross world. It was grotesque. You would not have wanted to live in it. And children were just somebody to get some work out of, even until 100 years ago. Children were working in coal mines and working on ships and And the increase of his government does not mean that the church got it all right, that we understood every meaning of what Jesus taught. But over time, over the last 2,000 years, it has increased. We have realized the extent of the meaning and the value of what he taught. And we have moved into women's rights, children's protections, the value of children's lives, and the abolition of slavery. Early Christians elevated the roles of slaves by accepting women and slaves as full members. It's the first time in world history that slaves could be anything. But in the Christian church, slaves and masters worshipped side by side. And the New Testament in 1st Corinthians and in Philemon and other places, Paul tells the masters, they are your equal in Christ and you are not their master in the church. You're their employer, you are not their master in Christ. That was world-shaking. That slaves were full members of the church. Slaves participated equally in worship and in the community of the church and were afforded contract and property rights. The historian Glenn Sunshine in his book, Why You Think the Way You Do, says Christians were the first people in history to oppose slavery systematically. The early Christians purchased slaves in the markets simply to set them free. It is true that Some people claiming to be Christians have owned slaves throughout history, but it is more true that slavery was ended in great measure by Christian activists. A 5th century monk, Telemachus, paid with his life to end the gladiator spectacles in the Roman Empire. British evangelical William Wilberforce was the first and primary force in ending the international slave trade. In 1835 in America, while slavery is still legal, two-thirds of the members of the American Abolitionist Society were preachers. Two-thirds of the people working to abolish slavery in America were Christian ministers. All through history, we have always had slavery. And even the church, people calling themselves Christians, embraced or used slavery as an economic process. But over time, through the increase of his government, the church came to realize we cannot do this. It has nothing to do with racism. Slavery was racist in America where one race was enslaved by another. But in all the rest of the world, including still today, slavery has nothing to do with race. It just has to do with who can I kidnap and take over. And the Muslim world still practices slavery with abandon today. And the Chinese factories that make our Christmas lights amount to slavery by any imagination. The working conditions and the pay that goes on and make your shoes and your electronics are... uh, a modern-day slavery. And the church is still working to spread the increase of his government. Amen? Paul the Apostle, when he was Saul the Pharisee, shows the power even of religious hatred and racism 
in his life, but he met Jesus and he was so radically changed that later in his life he pins the words of Galatians 3, 26 to 28. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. We have absolutely no idea how world-shaking revolutionary that was when he wrote it because we live in a lot of the fruit of that that Paul says in the Christian church men are not worth more than women slaves are not worth less than their masters and there is absolutely no racial division in Christ he's not denying that gender differences exist or that racial differences exist he's saying there is no difference in Christ in value or salvation hello and even he did not believe that in his previous life in his younger age. But the open election of the resurrected Messiah is world-shaking, universe-changing that Jesus will accept anyone, regardless of race or sex or criminal history or sinfulness. Jesus will accept anyone who will repent. It's certainly true that many Christians who call themselves Christians have been racist, actually even beginning with the apostle Peter. He wouldn't eat with Gentiles. In the book of Acts. And Paul says, I rebuked him strongly to his face. But Christianity has never been racist. It is the very first truly universal religious faith. The government of Jesus started when unto us a child is born. This change in human rights, this value of human life that did not exist in the ancient world where there was a very small noble rich class that ran the world and everybody else was a slave or lived very poor dirty short lives and Jesus comes along as God in the flesh making humanity something divine something very special something very unique. What gives us value is that God became one of us. The classic Muslim uh, objection to the divinity of Jesus, something that the, the Muslim imams, the teachers, would always argue against Christians because Muslims believe in Jesus and they believe he was a prophet of God. They just don't believe he was the son of God, nor was he God in the flesh. And Christians say, yes, he is God and he is God in the flesh. He is the son of God. And a Muslim would say, well, God can't become a man any more than he can become a dog. But that statement betrays their assumption that humans and dogs are the same thing. And Christians would say, no, human life has infinitely more value than an animal. We are something in the image of God in the way a dog and a whale are not. So every life has eternal value and earthly value. And it is only Christianity that teaches that. The value of human beings, the progress of human rights, is not humanitarian, it is Christian. Saudi Arabia still today will not sign the UN International Declaration of Universal Human Rights. Saudi Arabia, the government, will not sign that treaty because they rightly say, this has nothing to do with universal human rights, it's a Christian document. Because the, the International Declaration of Human Rights gives rights to women and outlaws slavery and religious persecution and Saudi Arabia doesn't want to do that. They don't want their women and their infidels and their slaves having rights. So what has presented, presented to you in high school and college is that human rights are humanitarian. They are not. They are specifically and exclusively Christian. And 
the Muslim governments of the world know that. Saudi Arabia says that's not something we agree with. That isn't universal. That's Christian thinking right there, and we don't want anything to do with it. So even the unsaved people in historically Christian countries have Christian ethics that other religions will not agree with. Equality of every human life, the value of every human life, is only moral and theological. It certainly isn't intellectual. There are really, really smart people and really stupid people. There are people who make lots of money and there are people who cost the rest of us lots of money. (laughs) People do not have economic equality value, right? You earn money and other people suck it up. The equality of every human life is only a Christian theological idea. It has nothing to do with production value or artistic value or creative value or economic value or intellectual value. There's nothing in evolution that can support the equality of human life. In fact, natural selection is exactly the opposite. It is the strong survive and it's kill or get killed. Hello? Evolution has nothing to do with equality. It has everything to do with survival of the fittest. And again, in economic value or intellectual value, people have big differences. A Hindu or a Buddhist would never agree that people have equal value. Like, well, that person was born in the gutter because they're being punished for their sins from their past life. And I am more valuable and they're untouchable. In actual fact, criminals and sick people and unemployed people and infertile people and gay people and children and disabled people and mentally handicapped and elderly, they don't contribute to the survival of the species either because they don't procreate or because they can't work. And in every evolutionary sense, they have no value because everything about evolution is the survival of the species. So we arrive at Nazism. Kill everyone who is not productive. Kill everyone who does not aspire to Arianism. Kill the handicapped. Kill the gay. Kill the disabled. Kill anybody that isn't like us. That's the fruit of evolution. If you can't work or you can't make babies, you're pointless to the survival of the species. Evolution, atheism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, all of these categorically discard all or some of those people on that list. But Christianity alone gives value to every life, regardless of material or survival or economic value and even sinfulness. God's love assigns value to every life, even if you're a rotten, miserable sinner. You're still worth the life of my son. That is only Christianity. No other worldview or religion or thought process arrives at equality, just Christianity. And so, because through the last 2,000 years, the gospel has been spreading, and those ideas that Jesus planted to take care of orphans, that the least is the greatest, that children have value, that women have value, that slaves should be free, as 2,000 years have passed, and those ideas have spread and increased in scope and power and influence... The next thing that has changed in the world is the amount of generosity and welfare and care that we take for each other. The rest of the world before Jesus did not care about people. There is no record of charity in the ancient world. None. Zero. In the historical record of charity. Because who would give away their money? Who would take care of another person? That, that's stupid. You made your money, you keep it. Charity and compassion and mercy in the world are the direct result of the government of Jesus Christ in the earth. 
back to Dinesh D'Souza. Our culture puts a powerful emphasis on compassion, on helping the needy, on alleviating distress, even in distant places. If there's a huge famine or reports of genocide in Africa, most people in other cultures are unconcerned. There's a Chinese proverb that says, the tears of strangers are only water. But here in the West, we rush to help. Part of the reason we do this is because of our Christian assumptions. The ancient Greeks and Romans did not believe this. They held a view quite commonly held by other cultures today. Well, yeah, that's a problem, but it isn't mine. However, paradoxical it may seem, people who believed most strongly in the next world did the most to improve the situation of people living in this one. Milton Friedman said, without religion, the appearance of an ethic of compassion cannot be established. The amount of disaster relief and welfare programs and charity to the poor that not just the church, but the nations and governments and the thought processes of people in countries that are traditionally Christian, that amount of money is actually incalculable how much money we give away and take care of people. There's always been doctors and medical care, but the accessibility and the level and quality of publicly funded medical care, the fact that we have ambulances and hospitals is the fruit of Christianity. Hospitals were started by medieval nuns during the plague. They went and took care of people who had the plague, even knowing they would get it and die. Jesus said, lay down my life to serve my brother and sister, so I do it. Hospitals did not exist before Christianity. Of course, there were doctors, but there certainly weren't people who were paid by the public funds to go and rescue people having a heart attack. The fact that we have firefighters is the government of Jesus Christ. Firefighting did not exist in the ancient world. In Rome, if your house was burning, there would be men who would come with their slaves and they would haggle with you while your house is burning on how much you're going to pay them to put it out. And they would totally scalp people and, and nobody's house ever got put out because there'd be an argument over what I'm going to pay to, and eventually it would just burn, or you'd have to pay your life savings to get half of your house saved. Nobody's going to use public funds to fight fire, but in America we have value on people's lives. Hello, not just America. The fact that we have law enforcement as a police or a sheriff instead of a soldier is a very big change from how the world used to be. Soldiers would come in and do whatever they wanted with your money, with your food, with your women. And they could stay there as long as they wanted. But the Christian value of caring for people created what we now call modern law enforcement. The fact that in our penitentiaries we feed the prisoners is 180 degrees different than anywhere else in the world outside of Christianity. In the pre-Christian world, if the family of the convict doesn't bring food, he doesn't eat. But in America and plenty of other places, generosity is so assumed that we take care of people even in prison. If there was anybody who had no value to their life, it was prisoners, convicts in jail. Why would we waste money and time on these people? It was Christian activists that changed the conditions of dungeons in the medieval period and missionaries that would go in to other countries and force kings and parliaments to fund hygiene and cleanliness and food in the penitentiary system. The fact that we have laws enforcing racial equality and protection for minorities is only a Christian idea. 
Nobody in world history has ever thought minorities needed protected. They need robbed and killed, and their lands needs taken away for us. It's always been survival of the fittest. Jesus came along and said, no, let's do things a little differently. Let's love the least of these. Don't kill somebody and rob them just because you can. The amount of social work that goes on in, by the church just in America is mind-blowing. After Hurricane Harvey, anybody in Houston would tell you that the church Christians far outpaced the government in their response to bring food and medical care and clean up. Just, just bring shovels and rakes to clean the mud out of their houses. In America today, 60% of all feeding and housing of homeless and poor people is done by Christian ministries. 40% is done by the government. Just the United States alone, 60% of the feeding and housing of the poor and the homeless is done by Christian ministries. If we look at the world as a whole, that percent that the church does goes up. The relief and benevolence and clothing and feeding and medical care ministries of the world, because most other governments in the world don't take care of people. If you're if you're homeless, so what? Go sleep under a tree. We don't care about you. It's karma, or it's the government is Muslim and you're a Christian minority. We don't care about you. It's sixty percent in America. It goes up to ninety some percent when we take in the whole world. In the social work area of caring for people's mental and emotional health. It's staggering. There are 353,000 clergy in America alone, 353,000 of us. Most of us are not trained professional counselors. We're not psychologists or therapists, but we all do a lot of counseling. People come to us with problems and marriage disputes and personal issues, emotional problems. It's 138 million hours a year of free counseling and care given by clergy in America. 138 million hours a year for free by pastors, rabbis, priests. The fact that we take care of our veterans is the kingdom of heaven. Nobody took care of injured veterans in the ancient world. And still today in most countries, if somebody's wounded in war, if your hand is blown off in a battle in Africa, there ain't nobody going to pay for that. There's nobody going to give you a job or pay you a stipend for the rest of your life. It does not happen outside of Christianity and the nations that have been influenced by Christian thinking. The U.S. church alone, 350,000 congregations, 70 million people just in America, born again, believing, practicing Christians, 70 million of us, fund $20 billion a year of gifts and donations. $20 billion a year, given away. That's an amazing amount of money. The asset value of the American church alone, so this is buildings, properties, funds, and so on, $2.1 trillion. We're bigger than Apple and Microsoft combined. The American church alone, not the worldwide church. That doesn't count the bajillions that the Catholic church has in Italy. The American church alone is bigger than Apple and Microsoft put together. We're big. There's a lot of us. We do a lot of good. We are salt and light. Even Santa Claus is the fruit of Christian generosity. 
St. Nick was a real person. St. Nicholas was a real Christian bishop. But even the ridiculous mythological figure that we have now, it's a Christian myth about generosity. There is no myth from the ancient world about generosity. None. Zero. Santa Claus is a Christian myth about generosity. It's wonderful. It is. It's better than you think. Did you know the kingdom of heaven included Santa Claus? Marriage is another change in the increase of his government over time. Back to Dinesh D'Souza. Before the Christian era, pederasty, that's child molestation, and homosexuality were not considered wrong. But Christianity came along and exalted heterosexual monogamous love, which would provide the basis for a lasting and exclusive relationship between husband and wife, oriented toward the rearing of children. We take the family so much for granted. It remains such a powerful ideal in our society, even when actual family life falls short. Well, we forget that the central premise on which it was based, those premises were introduced by Christianity into a society to which they were completely foreign. Dr. Vishal Mangalwadi, who is an Indian man who's a professor, he points out that monogamy, one lifetime marriage, is an exclusively Christian teaching. It's not even a Jewish Old Testament idea. That one man and one woman would be married forever is the Christian ideal. The government of Jesus commands that a husband care for and provide for and be faithful to one wife until death do us part. And he commands that a wife respect and be faithful to one husband until death do us part. That is completely foreign in the unchristian world. Indeed, it remains a difficult standard even within the church. But the fact that that idea has become the worldwide norm even outside of Christianity is proof of the increase of his government. Education is another aspect of the increase of the kingdom of heaven in the earth over the last 2,000 years. In Exodus, God gave his written law to illiterate former slaves, nomadic shepherds who had to learn to read and write so that they could obey God so that they could prosper in the promised land. Jesus was a rabbi who selected not the sons of the nobility, not the richest families to tutor, but poor illiterate fishermen and rabble-rousers. He taught them for three years and then entrusted the history of the entire universe to them. He's a brave savior. Universities were begun by medieval Catholics. The phenomenon of education for the masses, compulsory education for all children, is relatively new in the world. It did not exist in the ancient world. Only the sons, not the daughters, never, the sons of the richest people who could pay for school were educated. But the phenomenon of educating everyone is a fruit of the Protestant Reformation. It's not an accident that the Reformation and the printing press were released upon the earth at the same time. The Luthers and other Protestant leaders, indeed almost all Protestant parents, saw the requirement that their children be able to read the Bible for themselves so that the abuses of the medieval Catholic Church could not be repeated. In America, the first law to require all children to be educated by public funds, the official name of the law that requires children to attend school and requires the county to pay for the school is titled the Old Deluder Satan Act. That is the name of the law, the Old Deluder Satan Act, because they believe the devil gets his foothold into people's lives because of their ignorance of Scripture. For the first 200 years in America, children's school textbooks emphasized the Bible. The emphasis on literacy was so intense in colonial America that John Quincy Adams said in the early 1800s the illiteracy rate was four-tenths of a percent. Today it's more like 12 to 14 percent of people who are functionally illiterate. All but one of the first 123 colleges in colonial America were Christian institutions. Harvard, one of the most godless and liberal institutions today, this is their founding motto. 
Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17, 3. That is the founding motto of Harvard University. Yale, Oxford, Cambridge, all the Ivy League schools in America, the main universities in Europe were all funded as seminaries to prepare educated preachers. Another example of how Christian our school systems used to be How many of you would know where Orwell Corners is? I'll give you a hint. It's in Canada. It's on Prince Edward Island. It's the home of Lucy Maud Montgomery. Now do you know? This is where Anne of Green Gables takes place. Okay, It's a fictional story, but Lucy Maud Montgomery lived in Prince Edward Island, Orwell Corners in Canada. And there is really a house where they filmed the show. There is a school where obviously it's fictional people, but the school did exist. And in the story, of course, you have Anne and, and her friends and Gilbert and, and all of that going on. And, and it all centers around, at least the first book or two, uh, all around her teaching in this school. A 16 or 17-year-old girl would be teaching younger kids in this school. And that school building exists, and it's still there as a museum, a one-room schoolhouse built in 1895. And there, if you go there on vacation, you can see this. And on the wall, they have samples of the children's work from the actual students that were in that classroom in that building there is in children's handwriting fifth sixth grade seventh grade kids who hand wrote their lessons and here's a sample of two of the lessons stand out in my mind each took up a single sheet of paper one of them was headed by a couple of verses of devotional poetry beneath the verses the student had parsed every word in the verses describing what part of speech it was what grammatical form it bore case number and gender for nouns and adjectives person, number, tense, mood, and voice for verbs, what function it served in its clause, and what relation it bore to other words. How many of you could do that? I have a degree in English, and I would have to go back and review that stuff. The student's performance was entirely correct. The other lesson was obviously an introductory one. The student wrote a noun in its singular and plural forms. In the nominative, genitive, dative, and accusative cases, this second student was clearly one of the younger children, as you could tell from an occasional roughness in his printing. The word in question was doulos, Greek, for servant. The children were studying Greek so they would be able to read the New Testament in the original language. 16, 17, 18-year-old girls teaching elementary and middle school age kids biblical Greek in 1895 in Canada. We've come a long way, baby. And I don't mean up. The fact that we have the freedom of the press, the fact that the internet exists is because of Jesus. I don't mean the stuff on the internet. I mean the fact that we have access to all of the information that exists is Jesus Christ. Because all governments, all dictatorships, all oppression happens because the government, the king, the dictator does not want the people to be educated, to know how to read, to know what's going on. And the fact that we have talk radio and CNN and InfoWars, as stupid as all that is, the fact that it exists is the government of Jesus Christ. That's the freedom that has resulted in the world that wants an educated public, which is not what earthly government wants. 
Jesus' command to preach and write in every language creates literature and spiritual beauty in every language and demands universal education at some level. Many of the world's languages were first set into writing by Christian missionaries in order for people to read the Bible. The ancient world only saw value in educating the ruling class, keeping the masses enslaved to ignorance and poverty and oppression. But ignorance is every bit as satanic and destructive as meth or racism or communism. Education for the sake of education is godly. It is the government of Jesus Christ. Closely related to that is the progress of science. What we call modern science is the child of Christianity. It is the fruit of the increase of the government of Jesus. All other world religions express a worldview of fatalism. Either something is determined by fate or karma or God. Or Buddhism teaches that it's all an illusion. So we don't want to interact with it. We want to find the spiritual. Science did not arise from those ideas, not because those people were less intelligent, it's because of what they believed. I've told you before, when a Hindu Indian moves to America, the Indian population in America is wealthier than the average American. Poverty in India has nothing to do with the fact that people are stupid. That's racism, if you think that. It has everything to do with Hinduism. Keeps them in poverty, because they believe everything is fate. And we in America have a belief that you can better yourself. You can have a new life. You can work hard. You can earn money. You can save. And God has a plan for your life. And you have a future. There's a reason why science arose where it arose. It has nothing to do with other people were stupid. It has everything to do with belief or oppressive governments. You know, Africa has more natural resources than North America ever dreamed. But the oppression of their own government keeps people enslaved. People of Africa could live very wealthy if they had free government. They were allowed to keep their own money to work for themselves. Instead, they're enslaved in the diamond mines and whatever mineral it is that's all in our cell phones and that they have to slave away to dig up so that we can have our electric cars and our cell phone batteries. Christianity, on the other hand, is based on the notion that there exists a rational God who is the source of rational truth. And this gave rise to the possibility of scientific laws. Romans 1 and 2 says God has revealed himself in nature, and if we look at nature, we will find God. So all modern science was an attempt to find out who God is. In fact, in the 14, 15, 1600s, they didn't use the word science, they used the word natural philosophy. It was observation of created nature rather than relying on some metaphysical or metaphorical mythological explanation for why the wind blows. Has nothing to do with Icarus and Zeus. Has something to do with natural processes. Modern scientists came from Christians who didn't believe mythologies to explain nature. They said, God created this. God is rational. He wants us to be educated. Let's learn. So, observation and study led to knowledge and skill and usefulness. And usefulness led to harnessing of nature's forces and processes and invention and industry and technology. Kepler, Boyle, Pascal, Pasteur, Newton, Copernicus, Bacon, Galileo were all born-again Christians seeking to know God. And in the process, they made some of the greatest early scientific discoveries ever. The dentist that invented anesthesia got his inspiration from the Bible story where God put Adam to sleep to pull his rib out to make Eve. He's like, well, if God did that, then there's a way to do that for my patients so I can put them to sleep while I pull their teeth out. And he prayed and he thought and he did inquiry, and because of his Christian faith, he invented anesthesia. 
the original owner of the heavy equipment construction company. The owner was trying to get his engineers to invent articulated steering. That's the kind where the machine bends in half, like a front loader, Hello, a tractor. You know, some of the tractors don't have steering tires. They bend in half. They, the engineers could not figure out how to make articulated steering work. And so he prayed one night and asked God for the answer, and he fell asleep and had a dream. When he woke up, he drew what he saw in the dream, and he gave it to his engineers, and they said, that will work. God releases technology into the earth. There, obviously, there's nothing here that's not already in heaven. Okay? No technology that we have, all the way up to and including our cell phones, is like, oh, God, oh, dang, I never thought of that. Wow, they're really smart. Come on. It's a no-brainer. Everything we have created and done, God thought of first. So it makes sense that it comes from Christians. People with faith in God are learning and discovering. Another change in the world since the government of Jesus is the government of the earth. Why have tyrants always feared God in the Bible? From Pharaoh to Pilate and Herod, all the Caesars, the medieval Catholic Church and the kings that they controlled, Robespierre and the French Revolution, Napoleon, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Pot, and ISIS. Why do all these people hate Christians and fear the Bible? Because freedom is God's idea. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Freedom and equality are exclusively the message of Christianity, the government of Jesus Christ. You have been told in high school and college that democracy was a Greek idea. If that was true, then the conquests of Alexander the Great would have spread democracy everywhere, all over North Africa and the Middle East. But it didn't. It spread tyrannical, horribly oppressive government. Why? Because in actuality, Plato wrote, democracy is the worst form of government ever conceded. And he taught that to Aristotle, and Aristotle taught that to Alexander. And Alexander made himself a dictator. It is the Protestant theology that each person is a priest and king to God that led to each person being able to participate in earthly governments as well. Obviously, the verse says in Isaiah, it is the increase of his government. It's continually increasing over time. So the Apostle Peter did not wake up the day after the day of Pentecost and think, democracy. It took... 17, 1800 years for the church to figure out if we really value people's lives, if we really value their property rights and their legal rights and their political rights, we need to have a free government. You can see the progress of church history corresponds to the progress of free government until we have the United States Bill of Rights. Jesus is teaching that the greatest will be the least, that the first will be the last, that the leader is the servant of all, is the seed that grew into government of the people, by the people, and for the people. In most Western countries, their government leaders are called ministers. What's prime minister mean? First servant. Minister means servant. That's totally backward from anything in world history, that the government leaders are seen as servants of the people. That's Christianity, folks. That's Jesus. He planted that seed in the earth. The greatest among you will be the least, and the least will be the greatest. And it grew into what we now know as representative government. America is not specifically Christian. I understand that. I get that. But 50 of the 55 signers of the U.S. Constitution were Orthodox, born-again, believing Christians. You think their ideas might have had something to do with the document they wrote? Absolutely. Absolutely. America's foundational idea of the rule of law rather than the authority of a man 
comes from the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments. The Old Testament says that even God has to keep his own word. So we're not going to have a king that is above the law because even God is not above his own law. The notion of the sovereignty of God is mentioned in the Mayflower Compact, the Declaration of Independence, all 50 state constitutions. It's on our money rather than the sovereignty of the government. The fact that we have political rights to vote, to petition, the right to protest is from Jesus. The fact that we have legal rights to a trial, to an attorney, to hear the witnesses against us, to testify on our own behalf, that's all from Christianity. It's from starting in the Old Testament, but definitely the New Testament. Property rights, freedom of religion, your freedom of conscience. Every government is corrupt, including ours, but the fact that corruption is illegal here, ask the people of Zimbabwe why they threw such a party when Mugabe resigned last week. Because governments can be wicked. Dictators are evil, evil, evil people, and thank God we don't have to deal with that. Even when people do wicked things here, eventually they're held accountable. And I don't have any ideas about America being perfect. I know there's plenty wrong, but the ethic of our country was birthed in Jesus. Free enterprise and work ethic. Dr. Mangawati, who you're going to watch in just a second, he's an Indian professor. I love him because he teaches Western civilization, even though he's not a Westerner. He's not an American liberal or conservative. He just talks about why Christianity succeeded in the West. And he says, the cultures that built the Taj Mahal and the pyramids didn't invent indoor plumbing or the wheelbarrow. Why do we have these beautiful buildings that we still today do not know how they were built, but they couldn't think of indoor plumbing? Obviously, they're not stupid. Obviously, they create great beauty in Angkor Wat and at the Taj Mahal and in the pyramids. And so why is it that they didn't invent plumbing or the wheelbarrow? It's because they didn't have a value for human life. I have an indispensable number of slaves and I'm the dictator, I'm the king, I will do whatever I want, and their lives mean nothing. They are completely replaceable. I don't need a wheelbarrow, I need another slave. Listen to Dr. Mangalwadi tell why Christianity resulted in the inventions even that make our lives easier today, why that came from Christian nations. The man's a genius. Couldn't have said it any better than that. For all the reasons he just said, the technologies that have been introduced upon the world are the government of Jesus Christ. As he says, humanizing technologies, technology that saves lives, healthcare and sanitation and so on, that gets so much more production and wealth and raises everyone's standard of living. I have three more pages. I'm just going to have to stop. I'm really sorry this is going so long. Let me say this. That the number one effect of the government of Jesus Christ, of course, of course, it outweighs everything else that I've just said. The number one effect of the government of Jesus Christ and the spread and the increase on the earth is billions of saved souls. Billions of born-again lives, souls moved from hell to heaven, people who went from being a liability to an asset, to Jesus and to the world. Transformed lives set free from sin and addiction and bondage and ignorance and darkness. And as Jesus changed hearts, it, his words changed our minds and that changed the world. Everything else I just told you is the fruit of Christianity and our beliefs and our thinking and our values working itself out in the world. But where Jesus is actually working is in the hearts of men. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is in the hearts of men. 
The world is fast rejecting Christianity and it will lose the benefits of the kingdom of Jesus. But Jesus will never stop saving souls. He will never stop saving people. Seven billion people, half of whom claim to be Christian, plus all the believers and men and women of faith in the history of the world, it's billions of people, billions of souls who can honestly say, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Amen? The world has benefited from the government of Jesus that has been growing, increasing in scope and volume and influence and power since the night he was born in the stable. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you. We bless you. Thank you for your kingdom. Thank you that we get.